When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Come meet me at the museum with Alan and Daniel. We'll talk about the Cardinals all night long. Everyone, come gather round. To your favorite sound We'll talk about the Cardinals all night long We'll talk the games and all the rest About the team that we love best We'll talk about the Cardinals all night long We're gonna talk about the Cardinals all night long Good evening. Welcome to another edition of Meet Me at Mutual. I'm your host, Daniel Shoptaw, C70 Bat at C70 on Twitter. Alan Medlock going to take the day off because I'm bringing in the all-star roundtable. Um, we've kind of taken a selection from some of your favorite um, podcasts in the Cardinal sphere. Um, we've got Nate Heinegger from Talking About Birds. Hello, Nate. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. We've got David Jones. You know him from Gateway to Baseball Heaven with me on Sunday nights. David, how are you? Pretty good. How's it going? Pretty good. And then we have Ben Humphrey, one of the two Bens from Cardinals Off Day. Uh, ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right. We've all checked in, and now we have to talk about the Cardinals. Um, and I think to just maybe just open it up as if you think about the first half, first question that comes to mind is what the heck um <laughs> ben you've been around this whole thing a, a long time like i have how surprising has this first half been to you and how frustrating has it been um it's been surpri- very surprising and very frustrating now that being said I think the way that things have gone sideways is not terribly surprising because when you build a team around a pitching staff that gives up balls in play, you open yourself up to things like a downturn in defense, Rob Manfred changing the baseball again. So it's got more pop. And also your pitchers not, pitching well and if you don't have great stuff if you aren't pitching well it can get ugly in a hurry and I think the folks listening uh, to this podcast don't need to tell me how ugly some of these games have gotten this year and so I I think it's one of those things where if you had to draw up how the season would go wrong you would you would have started with the starting pitching and that is exactly what has happened but that doesn't make it any less frustrating. It's been really difficult to watch. 
Nate, what are your thoughts? I mean, is there anything that you could put your finger on besides like, you know, obviously the starting pitching and things of that nature that have driven you crazy over the first six, three months of the season? Well, as far as being driven crazy, um, yeah, obviously you point to the the bad pitching and the shoddy defense and inconsistent offense, but also just the the constant storylines that make it feel like mm-hmm. not only are the Cardinals playing bad, but they don't really have a plan and didn't see all of this coming like all of us did. I mean, the entire offseason was everybody across from major publications to tiny little podcasts like ours saying like, Hey, we think you need more pitching. And then it immediately collapses and we're getting wild storylines from the front office between the immediate, uh, uh, you know, down talking of Tyler O'Neill to the entire Wilson Contreras thing. Like it's added a, almost like embarrassing sheen over top a, a bad season. Like I, you know, it's baseball. I understand the variance. I think we are in some ways paying the, uh, the insane luck we got with like the 17 game win streak that, that saved the 2021 season or Albert Pujols suddenly becoming uh, the, you know, 25 year old Albert Pujols again last year that kind of also saved maybe the 2022 season. And now we're, seeing the uh the sort of opposite end of the luck spectrum uh but we didn't also have to be like horrible communicators during the entire time and embarrass our players for uh you know the way we saw ollie and, and mazelic handle some of this stuff so that's the stuff that has made it particularly difficult and frustrating for me um so yeah just an entire pile of disappointment David, and like we're kind of referencing there, you know, April was so terrible. Um, at the time, we thought, okay, this is bad, but things will get better. Did that just, you know, kind of put them in a hole that they just kept trying to dig out of and just got getting deeper? Is or I mean, like I guess what I'm trying to say, if they'd had a decent April, would we be where we are now? I think it was probably inevitable because that pitching just wasn't going to get any better. It felt like going into the season, both what you heard from the Cardinals and even from publications is everybody was kind of approaching things with a best case scenario mentality. You know, if Lars Newtbar continues to be like Babe Ruth and can live up to his baseball savant stats, if Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson can stay healthy, if Adam Wainwright can do what he did two or three years ago, if, 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 you know, we kept hearing if Jack Flaherty can be what he was in 2019. And it seemed like every standard for this team was set on based on the maximum potential. And I say maximum, and it was probably even unreachable potential for some guys. And for this to actually work, it was like every single guy had to live up to that. And that's just not feasible. And some of this, you know, I, I think we, we saw some of it coming. Like you guys have mentioned with the pitching staff, you know, a lot of people looked at this even in spring training and went, it's, I don't think this is going to work. Uh, but I don't think we expected things to start that bad. Um, but the thing is, I, I think even if they fin- finished the first month at 500, we, this team still was going to go on a downturn because the pitching hasn't been there. The defense hasn't been there. The defense is forced to do too much. The bullpen had to take over way too early. The bullpen is taxed now and looking terrible. 
it's you know just one of those things where you're looking at things and going our pets heads are falling off mm-hmm. um I, I think this was inevitable no matter what was gonna happen in that first month but um it's been really hard and ugly to watch especially as a fan Nate, it feels like it's been a bit of a perfect storm too right because as we're talking about that april we also have all these people that are that were scattered to the far winds to play in the world baseball classic we have the new rules with the pitch clock with the lack of shift all of that put together do you not to lay excuses because obviously the they're much more to it than that but how much of all that plays a role do you think yeah that's one of those things that i don't know that we will really know for quite a while i i i heard mosaic say in his interview with uh uh martin Cocoin around like they never really had a good spring training and it sounded like he was kind of trying to point to that and i get that you know there is a there's an element of t- team cohesion um but you know we've seen less cohesive teams play far better than what we've been seeing out of the Cardinals. I do think though, that in time, um, you know, I don't know immediately what the ramifications of these rule changes are from a long-term perspective, but I do suspect that we will look back at 2023 as a sort of era shift in baseball is similar to uh, mound lowering or, uh, live ball, you know, these like fundamental changes to the game that make everything different going forward. And some teams will adapt to it quickly and some won't. And we won't really know what that ad- adaptation really means uh, until we have more time. But it could be that, uh, well, I think we're seeing it to some degree. The data is showing that like pitcher uh, injuries are increasing. And so uh, maybe this strategy that the Cardinals went into in 2023 you know, it's kind of what they've been doing for like eight years in a row now. And it usually doesn't collapse until July. And then you can go and trade for some for a Quintana or a Lester or a Hap or a Montgomery or uh, a Lackey. Or, you know, you could just run down the history of the Cardinals and we do this every year. You have to they go and trade for a starting pitcher. And maybe that works uh, up until, well, it really it has been working. But now maybe 2023, the pitch clock, it's too draining. You You can't have... Uh, seven mid-level starters go into a season. You have to have something better than that. I don't know, but I I think there's a possibility that that's something that we're learning from this year. It is interesting that that Mosellock, and I heard that conversation as well, that he does point to a lack of cohesion from spring training, which is somewhat fair, but also the fact that the Cardinals went, what, 17 and seven and had the best record in the spring. Um, (laughs) You know, know, they're... There's yeah, and how many there. we've seen so many teams over the years that have hated each other that have you know <laughs> one World Series, uh, fried chicken and beer in the dugout, etc. You know, like it's 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 a team cohesion is a fun and interesting narrative. And don't get me wrong, I I think it it can be important, but I don't know that uh, two weeks of not having that in spring training because your team is out there playing in highly competitive, highly interesting games. Uh, that they all seem to love was really a bad thing. You know, it, it was certainly good for at least Lars Newbar's uh, international fame. <laughs> and it's not like these guys didn't know each other. Like you weren't turning yeah. over the whole roster. They were like yeah. day one of the season saying, hey, my name is, you know, nice to meet you. Uh, the roster pretty much was intact from last year. Yeah, it's Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado. Like you think those guys 
Like they don't even really need a spring train. I think, you know, uh, the, the narrative at the time was this might be good for them. They get into competitive games way faster than spring training normally would have you. So it does feel like there, there was a number of things in that interview that I think, you know, Mosaic's just sort of shotgunning excuses and giving people something, you know, try to grab onto, you know, talking about injuries. It's like, yeah, there were there were some injuries this year, but not anything uh, out of the ordinary, um, not anything above and beyond what any other team has to deal with. So I, I don't necessarily buy it, but that's that sort of narrative thing where it's like, yeah, maybe it is team cohesion. Only the guys in the locker room could really answer that. Well, and, and Ben, I, I want to get to you because I know this is right in your wheelhouse. Um, we we do have, you know, this idea of leadership in the uh, clubhouse. No Yadier Bellina anymore. No Albert Pujols. A diminished Adam Wainwright. Is how much do you put into that, if at all? Um, I put a fair amount into it, and that might surprise some folks because I am a fairly uh, analytics oriented person. Um, But I also have a great deal of familiarity with the HR side of operations, like in my non-baseball life. And um, I really believe that, and it makes me feel good when Mosaic says things like on paper, it should be like this, but that, you know, there's a human element to this. And, and that is 100% true. Um, and I genuinely do wonder, you know, losing Yadier Molina, losing Albert Pujols, okay? And then you're left with Adam Wainwright, who's injured to start the year. And, you know, what is the leadership dynamic in that clubhouse? Because I, I felt that Mike Matheny, way back when he started in 2012, he inherited a veteran heavy clubhouse that was used to the Tony La Russa style where he had a council of veterans that he would consult with. And it was almost like a go between, between him and, and the rest of the club. And, you know, that's something that I felt like didn't get a lot of play, but I always wondered how much Matheny benefited from that in his first two, three years, uh, you know, before, the clubhouse kind of checked out on him, including Yadier Molina. And then you, you look at last year with Ali Marmol and, you know, he's got Yadier Molina, he's got Albert Pujols. And, you know, one of my, just one of the memories of the, of last season that is ingrained in my head is when Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado were nowhere to be found because they couldn't travel to Canada. And I'm not going to get into why. Right. But that they had that two game series against the Blue Jays and the first game really felt like so many games this season. And then that second game, it was like Albert Pujols in like 2008, you know, (laughs) like it was just like Albert and the seven dwarves. Right. Like (laughs) he came out and it was just like we're winning this game. You know, and, and, you know, we were talking about it earlier here in the discussion tonight about how he like it was like the founding youth for him. But that game, I really feel like that game is just and, you know, he gave interviews, he made changes with his swings and all that or with his swing and all that. And, you know, I I don't want to downplay that, but it really felt like 
it was just like Albert Pujols looking around and like, I'm Albert Pujols, we're winning this game. And the rest of the team was like, you're Albert Pujols, we're winning this game. <laughs> and, you know, it, when the, when that, when I was watching that game, I even got goosebumps a little bit because it was like just, and also in the lead up to that, he had struggled, right? Like his first half was not very good. And it was just like, it was just like he found Albert Pujols in that game. And, you know, down the stretch, he was Albert Pujols. And that, that takes pressure off of everyone and it lets everyone breathe and it lets everyone play and just go do their thing. Cause we have Albert Pujols, you know, that, that is a, that is a confidence thing. And, um, and I don't want to downplay that. I also don't want to downplay, and we've talked about this on Cardinals off day, so I don't want to belabor it, but we've talked about how it really seems like the front office, Ollie Marmol, the coaching staff maybe did not fully appreciate what they had in Yadier Molina. And I think we all might have somehow underplayed the value of Yadier Molina behind the plate with the way the Cardinals started kind of doing a money ball approach to pitching because, you know, stuff and strikeouts is at a premium now. They have not gone that route. And so Yadier Molina, I think, was integral in this pitching staff getting all the value it could out of the stuff that they had. And, you know, switching to Wilson Contreras, who I don't think is a bad catcher, but there's a learning curve when you're joining a new organization, regardless of your job, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone who's taken a new job knows that. Now imagine that you have to call every pitch in a Major League Baseball game with pitchers who you don't know, except through the scouting reports that you receive, you know, in the lead up. So, you know, not just a fraction of the games you're dealing with each year. And then on top of that, two of the pitchers who I would argue probably are the, the most kind of quote unquote feel guys, Michaelis and Wainwright aren't in camp that long. And then Wainwright's injured. And so it was not ideal for Contreras to take over, but I also don't think he ever could have been Yadier Molina. And so here we are where all of these things just kind of rack up on top of each other. Then you have the shift removed. And this is something that I, th I really would like someone to do a more detailed analysis on, and maybe I will at the end of the season. But, you know, Tommy Edmonds' infield defense, particularly on the, on the middle infield, has not been – it's been below average this year by the metrics. Nolan Arenado has been below average this year by the metrics. And I wonder how much value they got out of the shift where Arenado – is kind of like a tweener shortstop third baseman. So they were putting him as the only guy on the left side of the infield, and he's making some amazing plays. He's doing things in a normal formation, too, that he's not necessarily doing as well this year, and I don't want to downplay that. But then Tommy Edmond is also in a position where he's able to make a lot of plays because they can put him all over the field and really leverage his speed and, and his ability to break. And so... I'm, I'm genuinely interested in how much the, the shift limitation impacted this team's ability to defend on the infield and and how that has hurt this team now on top of all this they also gave up a ton of hard contact and played bad outfield defense on top of it but you know those things are interesting to me as well and but all of this you know when you're kind of 
when you looked at this team in April, it was a team that you could see bouncing back. But then you wonder with that, what is perhaps a leadership deficit with losing Yadier Molina and the gravitas of someone like Albert Pujols with his career resume in that clubhouse, Mm -hmm. if that, you know, maybe unlucky, however you want to categorize it. And, And I don't want to downplay, they didn't play great baseball, but I don't think they were as bad as their record showed. And it seems to kind of have dovetailed from there. And it's been a downward spiral for the most part every ever since, except for that little uptick, uh, you know, when they went through Chicago, Boston, and, and had a good run there. Um, and so you do kind of wonder if they had someone, you know, another voice or two in the traditional St. Louis Cardinals clubhouse leadership model, if things might be a little bit different. But that being said, none of those guys are going to pitch and that's really been the biggest problem yeah yeah i mean it is you know we can we we can sit and pick and 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 find different flavors of what the issue is but when they're giving up five runs a game uh on their good nights it tends to uh, overshadow everything else uh david to go back a little bit to that leadership thing you know the big story at the beginning of the year was the tyler o'neill thing and we thought okay, this is something that's going to blow over in about a week. And while it's not this overwhelming story now, it still feels like it's a bit of a shadow over this team, of, of or at least over Ollie Barmall and how people look at him. Do you think that's impacted the, re- the reaction people get from Marmol, or is it more about what he's doing on the field? I think it's impacted how fans view things. Now, it's interesting because, you know, that story seems so far in the past, and yet it got actually brought up today by Anthony Stalter on the fast lane, and he revealed some information that he said after he said it, he figured he thought it may not be uh, public information. But he talked about how that some of the Cardinals had gone to Marmol during spring training and mentioned that they were not happy with O'Neill's effort. And so him calling out O'Neill. Um, during the season was actually the continuation of a conversation that happened in spring. Now, uh, from my perspective, at least, if that's how things played out, I think that actually helps the manager in the clubhouse uh, with respect from the players. Now, when you're talking public perception, people like us that don't know all the details, we only get to see the the tweets and you know a few characters of on of what's actually happening. It can create a skewed view. But the thing is, the way media works, you know, we don't have to have the full story to have an opinion about things. We just find out what we want to know and then run with it. And you see that in the papers every day. So there may be a leadership problem happening. Uh, The question is, where is it coming from? Like, that's that's the issue that's tough to figure out for outsiders. Maybe it is the manager. Maybe it's the general manager. Maybe it's the vice president of baseball operations. Uh, Could it be a pitcher? Could it be a catcher? You know, some, but there is a breakdown somewhere. Uh, the way things have been handled, the way that comments get made. And then the next day somebody backtracks on that. And then, you know, the whole thing about Contreras playing outfield. And then we find out later, no, he's not, or Trace Barrera getting brought up and like, no one knows what's going on. Things like that do show there is a leadership issue. Now, 
it seems to be a communication issue, but communication is part of leadership. So I, I wish I had the answers as to who we could point the finger to and say, here's where the breakdown's happening. Here's who's at fault. Uh, this person needs to be replaced because the PR is terrible. The communication is terrible. But frankly, I don't know. A, a lot of times we have managers and coaches that are actually shielding their players. We may have the front office that's shielding a manager. Uh, but somewhere along the lines, leadership has failed and the optics have not been good. Where that is, it's tough to say, and it may just be a conglomerate of just a whole mess of things going on. Nate, not even to talk about the leadership part, but it does feel like the front office has been a little bit more discombobulated this year, right? And it goes back to what you were talking about with communication as well. But, you know, again, yeah, the, the whole sign Wilkins and Contreras only to not let him catch, um, you know. Yeah, put, uh, Taylor Motter on DFA only to, you know, let him pass through waivers and then put him immediately back in the major leagues. It feels like they've not been on their game this year either. Yeah, it, it feels like they didn't have contingency plans for what seemed like very obvious, very likely problems. Mm-hmm. Um, have I understand why they needed to carry three catchers given the moment that had happened, but just the simple fact that you're running a team with three catchers is a failure to plan. Right. Um, and, and on that, like Tyler O'Neill part, I, I did not hear the, the Anthony Salter interview, but I do think that's very interesting. And it does add some more context to why Ali Marmol would say something like that, but it is also the manager's responsibility to communicate well and protect the narrative of their players and of their team. And, if that was the case, if that had been an extended conversation and Ali Marmol had chosen in that moment to make it a public thing, he did a pretty bad job at explaining what was going on and just basically putting your player on blast with no context uh, is not good communication. So if it was the fact that he had been thinking about this for a while, even something as simple as saying, this has been a conversation we've been having all spring. We want to see Tyler O'Neill hustle more. this maybe isn't even a story because that actually kind of makes sense. And I could buy that, but it coming out of nowhere on a guy who has been like the most extreme max hustle person we've seen, uh, you know, it felt out of nowhere and it felt like, uh, like a a random insult at one of your, you know, supposed to be cornerstones of your team. And then, yeah, coming out and saying he's going to play outfield. And then the next day, Mazala coming in and saying, uh, no, never mind. No, he's not. It's been constant. And you mentioned uh, general manager. Do, do the Cardinals have a general manager? Because right, I'm pretty sure we just have Ali Marmol and uh, and John Mazalak. Is there anyone in between that? Because it, it doesn't ever feel like it. Yeah, I, there. It, the role of Michael Gersh has always been interesting. That being <laughs> said, I do think that many organizations that have moved their GM to a president of baseball operations yeah. still have that kind of, that kind of, uh, you know, dynamic or whatever, where, you know, it's the GM kind, is yeah. kind of like the guy in the the guy that never gets talked to for a while. Uh, but yeah. I also do think that the Cardinals, you know, the John Ozilak said this when he moved up, they wanted to start shifting things to, you know, let him do the big picture, let it shift it to, to Gersh. And that has never happened. And whether that's, you know, on, Mosaic has mentioned COVID. He's mentioned other things, but 
you know, the, the simple fact is that transition hasn't happened and it really feels like it's, it's needing to. Yeah. Um, it's, it's complicated. So. And I should say like, mm-hmm. I like Ollie Marmol. I, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of calls for him to be fired. Um, I think he needs some like PR training and just like communication management. I, I don't really, I'm not really on board with the like fire the entire coaching staff um, argument that you see. Although I don't know. I mean, there, there's certainly an argument for like the Cardinals need to find someone that is not fully uh, inbred through the Cardinal system. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe it is time to go and hire the equivalent of a dusty Baker or something like that. Um, I don't know who that would be, but maybe they do need to actually just kind of break the mold for the first time in, uh, you know, almost two decades and, and find someone who's not born and raised in the Cardinal system. But generally I, I still like Ali Marmol. I just think he has had a, he's not been great at, uh, at managing from a, from like a narrative communication standpoint for this team. Ben, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I, I mean, with respect to the Tyler O'Neill thing, I, I was at, uh, I have a good friend of mine, he lives around the corner, and he had a, a party over the weekend because his brother's uh, expecting their second child. Ooh. And they're big Cardinals fans, and their dad, you know, he does not listen to our podcast. He <laughs> is not on Twitter, right? Like, he right. is. And he he sought me out, you know, at this party and he went on a five minute harangue about Ollie Marmol calling O'Neill out in the media and how you just don't do that, you know? And just like, I really like just this very passionate and it was like, Oh, Ben's here. I can tell, talk to him about this. Right. And, (laughs) and the thing about that, that still to me, even with this latest disclosure, which is, you know, quite frankly, clearly from Ali Marmol, right? Like he's still leaking to the media. You know, you you know what I mean? Like, did you like, what are you doing, man? You, You know? And, but the problem with it, is he goes on this harangue about being smart and relentless. And this is our brand of baseball. And this is how we're going to run the bases. Can anyone that is in this discussion right now, tell me someone that you feel has lived up to the smart and relentless standard on the base paths for the 2023 St. Louis Cardinals. I can't think of anyone. So if this is the standard and the players are whining to Marmol about it and Marmol is calling O'Neill out about it, how is it that when we look at every metric, the team has taken at least one step back, frankly, probably multiple steps back on the bases this year? They aren't running the bases smartly. They aren't running them in a relentless fashion. They're running them more akin to the way that Tyler O'Neill was when he got called out, except they're doing it every day. They aren't doing it in the rain. They aren't doing it in the context of having injury trouble throughout your career and having a discussion with the front office, almost certainly about staying on the field. They aren't doing it with John Mosellock in the media, calling them out and saying that being healthy is a skill, right? And so when you look at this whole thing in context, 
there's a huge disconnect between what Marmal is saying with respect to Tyler O'Neill and what the rest of the team is doing with its performance. And Marmal is being silent about it in the media. And so why is it that the team does not run the bases well under Ollie Marmal? Has he lost the clubhouse? Is he bad at teaching base running? Are his coaches not prepared? Because these are the questions that I've started asking myself, because this seems like a systemic issue. And when you look at it through the, the prism of the Tyler O'Neill call out, it also then starts to look like this is a 30 something middle manager who should not have his job because he's calling out a player in April for something that he is unable to implement in terms of a standard for everyone else under his supervision throughout the entirety of the season. And that is a real problem. And so when I hear John Mosellock tell uh, Kilcoin that no one on the coaching staff deserves any blame, and it's just like, you know, the idiot who sent Tyler O'Neill home on Acuna probably deserves a little bit of blame on that, right? I, I still think it was one of the most idiotic send-homes we've seen, and I love Jose Akendo, but since some of the more questionable Jose Akendo sends, right? Like, there's a reason he got the fast food ad waving people around to get their, their meal <laughs> at the window. But it's, when you look at that, and it's just like, where is the problem with running the bases? Is it the base coaches? Are they making bad decisions on when they're sending people? Is it the preparation when they're scouting on who to send when? And it's there's undeniably a piece here that is on the manager and the coaches. And this whole thing where it's like Mosellock, and then I really feel like like most of the established media types who have access to everyone is also kind of holding the coaching staff harmless. And I understand why, because, you know, they interact with them every day. They rely on them for information, all those things. And I don't mean to cast aspersions based on that. But when you look at all of this, it's just kind of like, there's something wrong here. Because even if you're losing, you can run the base as well, right? Like that's a very, that's a very yeah. basic thing. And it's something that's easily quantifiable. And it also then you have this big show in April about how they're going to run the bases and then they haven't done that. And so it, to me, the whole thing just really seems like there is, there is a significant problem and there needs to be changes made. And I'm someone like I'm ready for Marmol to go. Cause he also just seems to not tell the truth when he talks to the media and by extension, us, the fans, you know, whether it's Wainwright, whether it's Contreras, whether it's holding O'Neill to a different standard from everyone else. I'm just, it, he just seems like he's not ready. Maybe in the future, he will be ready to be a major league manager, but I, I think he was kind of coddled by a clubhouse with Pujols, Molina, Wainwright. And now he doesn't have that security blanket and the team isn't performing and he doesn't know what to do. And it's pretty clear the team is not really responding to him. And I'm just, I'm kind of over the whole thing and I'm ready for him to go because people who can manage major league baseball teams are in ample supply throughout major league baseball. 
we don't need to pretend that it's some majestic job that has some mysticism to it. It's just being a good communicator, holding people to standards and being able to motivate and empower people. And Ali Marmal just seems like he's not up to the task. Just uh, it's a, it's a rough stat, but you know, the Cardinals are 19th in stolen bases and fifth in caught stealing. So that's kind of just to highlight that in the, the simplest way possible. Um, uh, okay. So we've gone about probably about halfway where I wanted to, and I don't want to end this part talking about the first half as a complete misery. Um, so David, what is one thing that you have enjoyed seeing on the field or related to the Cardinals in the first half? Well, the pitch clock has made these games get over a whole lot easier <laughs> and earlier. So that's been a plus. Um, I, you know, man, that's like the toughest question you've asked so far. There, there have been some good things, you know, seeing Jordan Walker hit the ball out of the ballpark, um, especially against the Marlins, the one he crushed where I thought they might win that game. But th- that's kind of been fun to see him play. Uh, Nolan Gorman has hit some moonshots that have just been really cool to see. I-, I wish his numbers were a little bit better and he didn't have those slumps. But you do see some of the youth kind of showing off what they have. And, and that's kind of exciting because, you know, there's some organizations that like they're terrible, but they also have no farm system. And you know they're just going to be terrible for a very long time. So when you get to see some of these young guys, these guys who are in their you know early 20s, mid-20s, and things like that, who are actually showing up, showing off, it kind of gives you a little hope to think, okay, yes, this year may must is this year's probably done with. It's probably a wash, but there is still hope for the future. Yeah. Nate, have you have you had something that's and you've enjoyed? Uh, Nate may have bounced on. I saw him drop for a minute. Well, oh, that might be his answer. That might be. <laughs> Maybe the the simplest answer is is absolutely nothing. Ben, while if, while we're seeing if Nate can maybe uh, get back with us, is there something that you have liked? Uh, you know, I've I've really enjoyed, and and I will probably always enjoy watching Brendan Donovan just kind of grind. Like, I just, I like watching him play. I like watching him take plate appearances. Um, and and Jordan Walker is a, you know, watching him just kind of grow at the plate has been really fun. Um, especially, and this is something, you know, I think I was pretty critical of, and I think a lot of folks are critical of when they demoted him. But since they have called him back up, I think it's it's pretty clear we've spent a lot of time criticizing folks. I think it's pretty clear that the the demotion down to AAA has done Jordan Walker good. Now maybe he would have done this anyway, but that's a counterfactual. The reality is, you know, the Jordan Walker who who has joined the St. Louis Cardinals since his demotion to Memphis versus the one before his demotion to Memphis is better and in an exciting way. Not Unfortunately, not in the field, but at the plate. And uh, that has been a lot of fun to watch as well. Well, if Nate's still having some some internet issues, hopefully he can get it back to us. Uh, Nate, are you there? No. Okay. Um, let's start looking at the second half then, uh, which is not necessarily something we're all that excited about looking forward to. But, you know, if nothing else, at the end of it, the season will be over. So there is that. 
Um, David, let's start with the, the big elephant in the room. Adam Wainwright currently on the injured list, currently two games away from winning 200. What does the second half hold for Adam Wainwright, do you think? I would guess he's probably going to get maybe five or six more starts, especially if this team is not in contention. You know, if somehow they make this run and win like 12 to 15 straight and get within five games of either division or wild card, uh, then some tough decisions are going to have to be made. You might see them not use him or use him very sparingly. But I think if this season is over and done with, they are going to do everything they can to get him back and to get, get him to 200. Now, Again, that might be five to six starts the rest of the year. But, you know, at that point, you don't really have a lot to lose. So why not um, let this guy get his milestone and at least have something to go out on on a high of some sort? Yeah, that, that would be that would be the ideal thing, I think. Nate, if you're if you're with us, what's your thoughts on Wayne Ryan? Yeah. Hey, hopefully you can hear me. Sorry, having some technical difficulties over here and I. I think it dropped me off my good microphone, so sorry for this sound quality loss. But um, not that I sound good to begin with. But uh, <laughs> Wainwright, complicated situation. One of the bigger bummers of this year. Again, it's like inverse 2022, right? We had everything broke right for the Cardinals in 2022, and we had such a glorious send-off of Pools and w- and Yachty, and we're getting the inverse with, with Wayne now. Um, yeah, I, I'm of the mind that... I just I don't see the turnaround coming to where the games are going to matter anytime again in the back half of the year. Uh, so my hope, I guess, is that Wayno goes on an extended rehab, is able to return to some form and can come back up and just try to grind out for those last few wins to get to 200. Um, and if not, then he's the he's the starter on game 162 yachty's there and does like a ceremonial first pitch or something and we all have a great time and and celebrate wayno and and he you know he walks off into the sunset and we immediately hand him a cardinal hall of fame jacket um but i i I don't know that the i i just can't see the right thing being him just going up there and getting shelled over and over in pursuit of this uh this you know, um, milestone. So it's, it's got to start with him looking good in a rehab assignment. If it's not, if he doesn't look good, then it's going to just be a ceremonial start at the end of the year. That's the way I see it going. Ben, is that, is that where you're at? Yeah, I thought it was, it was pretty interesting in the, in the kill coin interview when Mosellock you know, said there's a physical component to this and basically was like, you know, we want to give him a chance because of everything he's meant to this organization, but we're going to have to look at what, you know, basically like what he is physically able to do, you know, and that kind of was interesting to me because, you know, I just got done saying I'm sick and tired of Ollie Marmal, but Ollie Marmal just basically poo-pooed the idea that there was any sort of physical component until, you know, recently. And now John Mosellock's kind of being like, well, you know, he might not be able to pitch for the Cardinals again because of his health. Um, and so, you know, you do worry about that. Um, but 
it's also one of those things where what else do we have this year? <laughs> like, right. and if he's not good, you know, he helps him get a better draft pick. So it's just kind of yeah. like, I mean, we might as well see what we got. Right. Like, and I, I would, I don't really care about pitching wins. Uh, ben Godar, my, my counterpart on Cardinals off day, uh, I think is, is more interested than me uh, in Wainwright reaching 200. But, you know, when you look at this team, you're kind of running out of things to root for. Right. And so it's just kind of like, I really hope Wainwright does come back and he does get 200 wins because that would be kind of a nice feel good story that we haven't had a lot of this year and it's important to him and it's important to a lot of people. So it might not be important to me, but it would be enjoyable to see him and everyone else celebrate this accomplishment. And I also think it would help bolster his hall of fame credentials. Cause I think by the time he's eligible, 200 wins is going to be something that is a little more meaningful than it is today and a lot more meaningful than it was five, 10 years ago. And I think that might help, uh, you know, get him and some votes and I'm all in favor of that. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that he is able to come back and be successful. Yeah. And they have to put something on the highlight videos at the end of the year. So um, that would be good to actually have some material for that. Um, Nate, we're getting to the, the trading deadline and for the first time in anybody's memory, really Cardinals are going to be sellers. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. John Mose, like even saying we're going to trade some people, which granted doesn't necessarily mean they're going to trade some people, but it feels like that's the case. If you had to pick one person that you would guarantee will be moved at this deadline. Who are you going with? Jordan Hicks. I think it's the most Jordan obvious Hicks. one. Yeah. I think um, every competing team needs help in the bullpen. Jordan Hicks had a shaky start and he still has bouts of inconsistency, but he's generally exactly what a, a team is looking for when they're adding someone to their bullpen. Someone who can come in, strike out, uh, Strike out the side, has experience closing. Um, you know, I think he's a slam dunk to move. Now, you know, what you get for him, we haven't, you know, the the trading, the deadline and, and what you can actually get at a deadline has really evolved over the last few years. But I think he's the most obvious uh, candidate to move and probably the easiest to move. Um so I, I expect, I, I mean, I think I, a lot of guys are going to get moved. I'm, I'm really expecting uh, the majority, if not all of the upcoming free agents to be traded in this moment. But uh, if there was, if you're asking me to pick who the one who's the most likely, I think it's Jordan Hicks. David, who do you think? I would go with Jordan Montgomery. Um partially because I think he brings the biggest return and then also partially because he's a Scott Boris client. And so, you know, that there's going to be no extension done mid season. So I'd put him there. If I just went right below that, I think Paul DeYoung is actually probably next on my list because I think some team is really going to like 
what he can offer, especially with the pop in his bat that seems to be there this year. I don't think the return's going to be great, but I think it's a way for the Cardinals to not have to worry about that option or the buyout in the year to come. So those would be my two, but I think Hicks is also one of those guys that could also be high on that list. I think Man, all three of them. Are, are, <laughs> they're all going. Are you <laughs> – Nate's shipping out everything. Ben, uh, are you, if you're picking one, is it is it one of the Jordans or it's somebody else? Um, I mean, I agree with everything that everyone has said. I Listening to that interview, they're trading everyone who's a free agent after this year. I mean, Mosaloc yeah. said they are, they are more valuable now than the qualifying offer draft pick. And so, I mean, I would throw Flaherty... Uh, into that conversation, I think Stratton is probably, I would put probably Stratton at the top of the list, but Hicks would be my like 1B. And then I think, uh, I think Flaherty's going. I just, it seems like there's a little bit of friction between management and him. And, you know, he's not coming back. And so, I think they would rather trade him and get what they can than have to deal with the qualifying offer discussion. And so I agree with what everyone has said. And I would, I would throw Stratton and Flaherty into that mix. And I think they're all going. Um, And the most interesting thing to me, and I would be interested to hear what everyone else thinks is, you know, what Mosellock was, he was like, all these guys are going. The real question though, is what household names might we trade? You know, (laughs) I was like, well, household names is a real relative term. I, you know, who's a household name in mine is different from, you know, some other households. So I kind of wonder who else are they going to listen on? Because it really sounded like, you know, he's, he's of the opinion that they need to make changes and they're willing to listen on a lot of folks. And so I guess I would be interested to hear what everyone else thinks, you know, aside from the obvious people, who do you think who is a non-obvious name? I'm thinking like Harrison Bader last year. I think we we're all probably a little bit surprised by the Bader trade. Who's who is the Harrison Bader of 2023 at the trade deadline for the St. Louis Cardinals? Who do you think it is, David? You know, I had this conversation with a friend, my friend Shane today, who's a big Cardinals fan, and we were talking about the only Cardinals that might be, that are like untouchable. And our list was Goldie, despite what MLB Network says, Arenado, despite what John Heyman puts out there for clickbait. Uh, We put Walker on that list, which I think is pretty obvious. Contreras because of his contract. And then Wainwright and Michaelis. Other than that, I think anybody on the team is fair game and really in the farm system. Uh, I, I win and hints, I would think are kind of untouchable, but probably not 100%. But other than those guys, I think anybody on this roster could be gone by the trade deadline. And I would not be shocked to see any name moved, even Gorman, if it involved a pitcher. I really, I don't think anybody is safe except those several. Nate, do you, what do you think? Is there somebody that's not obvious that you're going to ship out along with everybody that is? I mean, I'm more in line with, with what was just stated. I, I do think Gorman is probably pretty close to that list of not being traded. Um, but for the right deal, I think the Cardinals need to need to have that mindset that absolutely everybody is available. And they just drafted multiple more uh, college level uh 
outfielders, you know, Chase Davis is going to slot right into the top five Cardinal prospects. So I, I am frankly kind of hoping, uh, if not just for the Cardinals, but for these players themselves, I'm kind of hoping that Alec Burleson is traded, that Juan Yepes is traded. I think the most valuable guy they have right now who maybe should be traded is Brendan Donovan. He probably gets you some of the most return. Um, we have plenty of position players. I know the offense has been inconsistent this year, but the offense is not the problem. The problem is that we're going into 2024 with two starting pitchers maybe and two bullpen guys maybe. They need to load up and let the, the one thing the Cardinal – uh, development team has been able to do is consistently churn out average to above average position players. We've got a log jam. Let's bundle them, ship them out, get some pitching because the Cardinals cannot develop pitching apparently. So we need to be selling anyone and everyone except for, I think, who was just mentioned, the the, the true core of the offense, Goldie, Arenado, Walker, Contreras. I believe Gorman, but for the right deal, he could go too. So... I, I, I'm really interested to see what Mazalek does this year, but I've been actually heartened by the fact that he's already sort of laying the groundwork for the fan base to be prepared for quote unquote uh, household names to be moved. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, that y'all all, all right, that I do think that, and, and Mo has always said, and how much he believes it, we'll see. But he's always said that n- nobody's untouchable. It just has to be the right package, right? And right. unlikely they're going to get a deal that's going to, you know, make them reevaluate keeping Arenado or keeping Goldschmidt or keeping Jordan Walker or anything like that. Um, if I was just to pick one name that's out, um, even though I think that the Cardinals probably value him more than other teams do, Mr. Humphrey might be excited to know that I think Tommy Edmond uh, would probably be one I think that would consider be considered a household name in cardinal cardinal circles, if you will. It's not necessarily a household name, you know, in, in baseball, but you know, a contender that somebody a contender could use as a, a fill in, um, and a guy that with Donovan and with Gorman, if they keep those guys. It, it has trouble finding a spot, even though we've always talked about him being this, you know, poor man's been Zobrist. Donovan fills that role better now. Um, and yeah. so I, I feel like if there is a team out there that values Tommy Edmund, I think that the Cardinals would be moving him. I just wonder um, what can you get ahead. for Tommy Edmund right now? You know, I yeah. know he was a yeah. huge 2022 and we'll always have that, <laughs> but you know, as was mentioned earlier tonight, he, he's not been great defensively. Obviously, putting him in center has been interesting, and he's done well, but he's not hitting very well. Like, you know, mm-hmm. who's buying Tommy Edmund right now at the price that we would want to get for him, you know? Yeah, and that's, that's fair. And I, I, you know, and, you know, it's I, I've always wondered if, what the market would be for him. But again, it also is one of those things that sometimes, sometimes it's a little bit addition by subtraction because it's obvious that they're going to have to try to clear out this roster a little bit. Um, So um, the thing that I would add to that, Daniel, is he's getting into the, the price point where the front office tends to move utility guys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like he's getting more expensive. He's not that good. 
um i know stay out of my twitter mentions but like his his skill level you know the majority of his plate appearances come where he's batting left-handed and he's not good at that and so he's really the short end of a platoon guy who's average below average in the infield apparently now and you know he's he's I I actually thought they would they would start the center center field experiment sooner, um, but when you when you look at all that, I just it it's you know if you have Newbar next year and someone who we haven't talked about is O'Neill. I, I mean I think he's probably likely to be traded, but his value is so low. Maybe they don't trade him and they keep him. But if you've got Newbar, Carlson, and O'Neill do you really want to be playing Edmund with a, a comparatively lower upside offensively and in, in center? Like is his defense good enough to justify playing him in center over these other guys, especially if you're not going anywhere this year. And so that to me is an interesting question. So I, I am interested to see how they approach Edmund in the second half and then also in the off season and and moving forward, if they see if they see a role for him, because he's getting more expensive, and it just feels like you know the the league, in terms of pitching to him, has kind of figured him out. And so, what what is his role with the Cardinals moving forward? So that is an interesting proposal, Daniel. But I, to me, the price point is really the tension there because the front office doesn't like to pay for utility guys, whether it's, you know, Greg Garcia or Daniel Descalso, you know, they're not, once you get into the, you know, the millions of dollars, they tend to have a little less interest in keeping you around. Yeah. And Edmund will be in his arbitration two year this year. He make 4.2 this year. So uh, he'll most likely because it's way arbitration work gets get a raise. So yeah, they, that does factor in for sure. Um, we're hitting about an hour and I don't want to anybody listening to fall asleep on us. So I'll wrap it up with this. We have what? Uh, 72 games left, something like that. Cardinals currently obviously last place. They are three games behind the pirates for fourth. Um, David, how does the second half go for the Cardinals? where do they finish in the division and do they, you know, do they pass anybody? I guess. Well, I kind of feel like it may just go like the first did. I think we're just going to be frustrated. It's going to be one of those things where you really don't want to watch the games and, uh, but you feel like you have to, because you're a fan, you know, we, I think we talked about this on gateway last week, but it seems like what will happen is that somehow this team's going to make a run, not good enough to make the playoffs, but they're going to make a run where it messes up the trade deadline, puts them really ha- have worse chance in the lottery of getting a good pick. And we see at the end of the season that the Cardinals are picking like 15th or something in next year's draft without making the playoffs. I, I just feel like something's going to happen because I don't feel like the second half can be this bad, even with selling off pieces and bringing in you know, the rich Hills or whoever it may be, or if they do another Lester and Hap type thing, I don't think the team's going to be this bad, even if they bring up Memphis guys. And so I, I do see some improvement. I'm going to predict that I, I think they actually finished third in the division. And I think we see a team that goes about 500 the rest of the way. And we just kind of go, eh, okay, whatever. 
Ben, what do you think? I, I mean, I think the NL Central is horrible. I mean, it is a bad division. I, I understand why folks are excited about the Reds, but I look at the Reds, and I don't really see a playoff team. And, you know, I kind of feel that way about everyone. And it, in a way, it, depending on what the Cubs do, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Cubs win the division. And, and so when you look at the second half, I, I tend to agree. I tend to think, uh, you know, that the Cardinals are probably going to do some climbing in the division. And after the first half, I think a lot of us are going to be like, can't you just keep doing what you were doing and get a higher draft pick that might help this team in, you know, 2026, <laughs> like, because, you know, what, what is the victory in finish th- finishing third in the 2023 NL central or, you know, around there, like it, it's just, okay. I, you know, there, it, it's a terrible division. And I also think that that is part of the problem is what it would take to win this division isn't a lot. And so as fans, when we look at this, we're like, how are we in last place in this division? It's terrible. <laughs> and I feel like the front office looked at the division and was kind of like, yeah, I think we can win this division. We'll bring Wainwright back for a victory lap and that'll be fine. We'll be able to replicate what we did last year, even with the more balanced schedule. And, and here we are. So I, I mean, I, I agree. I think this collection of players is better what, than what they've been. And I think they're more likely to play better in the second half than they have. And I think that'll hurt the teams. That'll help the team in the standings hurt the team when it comes to the draft pick uh, next June. Well, you know that you're asking what's the value is. You know our good friend Alex Christofoli is hoping that the Cardinals will finish at least ahead of the Pirates to keep that streak going. Um, we'll see if that happens or not. Nate, what do you think about the second half? Yeah, I mean, looking at the standings, they're 11 and a half back, but they're only three back of the Pirates. So if that's our new goal, if that's what we're looking for <laughs> in the second half of 2023, I'm I'm bullish on the St. Louis Cardinals, not <laughs> not falling below the Pittsburgh Pirates. I know it was fun. We all loved the narrative of uh, Pittsburgh having a good first month, but they're not that good. Uh, there's really no good team in this division, I think. I agree, even though Cincinnati's been a lot of fun. I don't think they have the pitching to sustain it. Um, I suspect that ultimately the Brewers are still going to win the division, and the Cardinals will end up in fourth unless – Chicago also does a complete sell-off, which I know they're kind of, uh, there's been some stories recently where they're trying to decide, are they going to try to extend Bellinger or are they going to sell? I think they'll ultimately sell and it's going to be a big challenge. You know, the, the big story will be who gets third between St. Louis, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. Um, I guess what my hope is, is that they do have a very interesting and dramatic trade deadline. And we can start to turn the page to what next year will look like. I'm interested to see a Mason Wynn call up, assuming Paul DeYoung is traded. If you're keeping track of the minors right now, Mason Wynn has been playing fantastic. Let's get him up. Let's start to figure out what our rotation is going to be in 2023. Uh, is it maybe someone acquired? Do we just throw Libertor back in there? Like, I'm kind of hoping we back into a bad uh, or into a good draft pick by just experimenting with the with the guys that we do have. Um, 
but I guess I'm all in on the Cardinals beating the Pirates at this point. That's my new, uh, I didn't know that's what I cared so much about until just now, and I'm all in on it. So uh, that's my prediction. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit different spot than we were in uh, a few months ago. But anyway, the draft class for 2024 is looking pretty interesting. I really hope they don't blow it and end up with like a 15th pick again, like you were saying. That that would be typical Cardinals, guys. I appreciate y'all joining me tonight. Again, Nate Heinger from Talking About Birds. As we're doing this Wednesday night, they should have their show out Thursday morning. Uh, In fact, if you're a Patreon subscriber, it's already out there now. Uh, David Jones, who will see him on Sunday as we do a new gateway to baseball heaven. And then Ben Humphrey, Ben, y'all got a Cardinals off day out this morning, didn't you? Yes, we did. So check everybody out. If you're not, I figure if you're listening to this, you're probably subscribed to all these shows, but if you're not do that, um, Alex, uh, Chris Foley, as we mentioned him a minute ago, he and I will do the show next Friday, uh, as Alan is off in Hawaii. So, Uh, Until then, for all these guys, I'm Daniel. Good night. The final time, Adam Wainwright, Yadier Molina, in regular season play. Here it comes. All of them coming out. Three icons in franchise history, spanning over two decades. Excellence here with St. Louis as Adams head to Yachty and Albert. You guys go first.